Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris i'm mick garris and this is postmortem I'm recording this a few days after we lost one of the true masters of horror. Stuart Gordon was one of a kind, a brilliant provocateur who began his life creating experiences on the theatrical stage, shows that brought him great acclaim as well as a stint in jail for breaking taboos. Stuart never lost his taste for upending the state and the stately. Beginning his career with the extraordinary reanimator, his work was filled with black humor, rivers of blood, and twinklings of satire at a deep, dark human sensibility. It was such an honor to work with him on his two spectacular masters of horror films, Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House and Pose the Black Cat. He was an artist and a craftsman and a wonderful man, and anyone who knew him or his work misses him terribly. There have been so many losses of the artist who helped craft the world of cinematic horror, enjoying its height of popularity now. Aside from their dark imaginations, the masters and mistresses of horror share many unexpected values, a great sense of humor, a concern for their society, and a sweetness and humility that surprises anyone who doesn't know any better. So many people expect those who induce terror, who wallow in blood and body parts, who explore the depths of our darkest emotions, to be dark of heart and spirit themselves, when nothing could be further from the truth. So I'd just like to take this moment to salute those we've lost in recent years to their art and their hearts. Stuart Gordon, Larry Cohen, George Romero, Wes Craven, and all who've left us way too soon we love you and miss you and owe you a tremendous debt. Thank you. Our guest today has taken his love for the genre to outrageous heights. As a comedian, an actor, a podcaster, and as a writer, Jonah Ray is a man of many talents. And as the ringleader on the reconstituted Mystery Science Theater 3000, his affectionate embrace of the lower rungs of the genre library makes for a delicious feast of laughter, especially for those of us who know and love the movies that are not exactly masterpieces. We'll meet Jonah and share our love for movies, monsters, and mayhem after this. Obviously, this was recorded before our extended and unexpected hiatus. 
but we still feel the sorrow for the loss of the beloved artists who expanded and illuminated our genre. Stuart, Toby, Wes, George, Larry, and so many more of the trailblazers of horror will live forever in our dark little hearts. Since Postmortem has returned, our guest on this episode, Jonah Ray, has just launched a new podcast called Let Me Watch Your Movie With You, where he has guests run a live commentary on one of their films with him. I am humbled and flattered to have been his first guest on the show as we talk Critters 2 for 90 minutes. I hope you will check it out, and it pleases me that our talk with him and his with me dropped in the same week. So let's get on with it, ladies and gentlemen, Jonah Ray. So Jonah, you are probably the first guest we've ever had who hails from Hawaii. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm always looking for more people in showbiz that are from Hawaii, but so far it's just me, Tia Carrera and The Rock. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so where did your love for the Outre begin? I mean, were your parents movie fans? Were you a TV kid? What What was the beginnings of it? Uh, well, you know, I think it. The, my earliest memory is probably my cousin Kalani uh visiting and he brought he brought you know that suitcase vhs player that you could rent from a video store (laughs) he brought that and he brought uh nightmare on elm street and i was probably about four or so or five and that kind of made a very uh distinct uh impression on me and my brother and then that just kind of went from there me and my brother kind of became obsessed with horror at that point i guess uh that's called great parenting yeah, they were my parents were very, you know, they the only thing I remember them telling us not to watch when we were growing up was we were watching crazy horror horror gore movies. And uh, but they didn't want us watching uh, Eddie Murphy Raw. For some reason, it's very American, I think, in that way, where it's like the language was worse than the imagery. And the and yet I, bet, I bet that was as big an influence as the movies you were watching otherwise, because, I mean, your career in stand up is your primary field, right? Yeah, that's how I got uh, started in, you know, entertain the entertainment industry. Uh, you know, grew up playing in punk bands and, you know, uh, and making little videos with my friends. But really, uh, the stand-up was the only uh, – something. I loved comedy so much, uh, but stand-up was the only thing I could figure out on how to get into showbiz. Like, it felt like it was this big dome in the middle of Southern California – And the only entrance that I was able to find where someone would just kind of not check my badge and see if I was really able to be in showbiz was like going through the open mic door. (laughs) And yeah. Where talent wasn't an issue, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, but it's interesting that you started not just in a rock band, but punk bands, because it's so anti-establishment, like horror films are, the genre films. And so was the appeal kind of the same thing, but in two different fields? You know, I think it was just, uh, I it felt like stuff for outcasts. Um, you know, I'm uh, even though my family's been in Hawaii a very long time, uh, generations, and, you know, I think I'm fifth generation born in Hawaii um, on my dad's side, but yeah, it's yeah. They came in early to work on you know sugarcane plantations and you know pineapple plantations and whatnot. And um, but uh, my mom you know moved there when she was a kid from California, so I got her you know pale skin. So I was already kind of this ostracized kid, and I had glasses, and I was taller than everybody. I was a big kid, and 
it really was that uh, uh, the punk community in Hawaii was very small, but every all the weirdos were welcome. Uh, <laughs> and and the same thing where every time I would go to you know see a horror movie or talk about horror movies with uh, someone that was at a video store, um, they were accepting of me, which is very you know very true about I think the horror community. Uh, it's it's very welcoming. It's true. What uh, what else? I mean, what drew you to the the music first? Was that the thing you first thought was going to be your vehicle? You know, I really, yeah, I did think that, uh, I don't know what I thought. I think it just like, I liked making stuff with friends and I liked uh, having projects and uh, I really loved, you know, Metallica and then Nirvana. And then of course, Nirvana was the gateway for a lot of punk. And so was Metallica. You know, Metallica is how I found out about uh, the Misfits and the Misfits had all that horror iconography um, in with their albums and uh, and you know movies about or songs about horror movies and you know it all kind of careened into each other a lot for me and I I think I just did it because that was something to do that was creative and it was also social. Well, you know, punk again is like sticking the finger your finger in the eye of society, as is. <laughs> the horror realm and uh you know it's it's busting taboos like we talked about with Stuart gordon this is a guy who embraced it all the way until he passed away at 72 he was a punk horror filmmaker and the the two really seem to cross paths and you not just in punk music but your embrace of the genre films but also in your stand-up there's a lot of taboo breaking that goes hand in hand there yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm not a really, I've never been an antagonistic guy. I've never, uh, you know, as, as a, uh, I'm, you know, six foot four, um, I'm a big guy. And with that, there's kind of a, uh, you have to kind of be extra nice, I feel, you know, because a, a lot of people can, you, you got to basically show up and be like, I'm not going to, you know, eat your village. You know, there's <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> at least that's how I've always felt with uh, being a larger guy. And so, I, but I, I love that the, the freedom and the aggression uh, that was allowed through the art of uh, punk and horror and stuff like that. It's like you can, you can cosplay these uh, violent or uh, aggressive emotions that I don't normally get to have. And for, and for, yeah, and for me, like a um, horror you know, genre and punk very much are DIY. And though, it's like, you know, I was never too anti-establishment, but I really always res uh, uh, fell in love with the, the DIY aesthetic of horror and punk of the just it's like no one's no one's going to give it to us we just have to make this ourselves well it's surprising how many filmmakers uh were also in bands i was william malone john carpenter tom mclaughlin so many people who were in bands and now you know john is more rock star than filmmakers these days yeah. <laughs> and, and it's fun to watch that so that correlation just seems fascinating to me. But comedy is something on top of that 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 seems to be unique to to your career. Yeah, you know, um, it. I grew up. Uh, I was born in 1982, so I got uh, just you know, comedy in my horror was the uh, was the norm when or the movies I watched growing up. Uh, you know, um, to. to Tales from the Crypt, what I was obsessed with, uh, Return of the Living Dead, uh, you know, um, 
Freddie got really fun. Right when I was kind of, you know, going to see uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies, Freddie got really funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And so these, it all kind of felt one and the same. It's, you know, a lot of that stuff. I just, uh, and, and for me, you know, I didn't, I, movie making just seems so big and I never knew that I was allowed to be a part of it. And I always wanted to be a part of it, but I, I feel, you know, when I moved to LA, I, like I said, if I, if I found like a scene, I always, I'm so jealous of that, that group of guys of uh, Joe Begas, Joe Begos, Josh Ethier and Graham Skipper, you know, they all moved out here and now they're all making movies together. And I was like, well, I wish I had those friends when I moved out <laughs> here, but I, I was by myself. So I just uh, started doing stand up because it was so one of my interests. Yeah. When you were a kid, did you go to the movies by yourself or did you have compadres who shared your interests? I had some friends that uh, liked the movies I liked, you know, uh, but, you know, I just, I wanted to see movies so, so much. And I wanted to see every movie. I remember uh, there was one day that uh, both of my friends, I think, were either busy or on a vacation or something like that. And so I went. Both of your friends. Yeah. (laughs) At the time, you know, and then uh, it's uh, and so I went to uh, I had my dad drop me off at the theater and, you know, I was uh, I was under, you know, I wasn't old enough to go see a rated R movie. So he, you know, bought my ticket for uh, Tales from the Hood. Uh, and then uh, cool I watched it. yeah, he was he was fine. He loved it. He would t- he, when he could, he would go and see movies with me, which is uh, something that was very, very fun and great of him. Because he never really, he never said, "Oh, let's watch this movie." He just let me pick and went wow. with me, and um, and and I remember exactly. I got out. Exactly. Uh, Hawaiian thing, yeah, yeah. It's like he's a, you know, my parents, um, they just very much they're like, you know, because they were kind of hippie drug people, so they kind of <laughs> they didn't want to put any rules on me, you know. Yeah, and I remember I got out of Tales from the Hood, and I was like, I had it was still the middle of the day in the summer. And I was like, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And then I just went back in and bought a ticket for Casper, the movie. <laughs> and I just watched that. And that was my double feature that day. It was Tales from the Hood and Casper. I remember when I was a kid, I went to the local movie theater and the birds was playing. And as I was walking home from the birds through a field, there was a big tree with, with no leaves on it. It was the autumn. And suddenly two birds landed, three more birds landed, five more oh, birds, no. landed, and I hauled ass home. That was, <laughs> that was definitely an impressionable, uh, impressionable moment for me. Yeah. I, um, I think, uh, I was, you know, I was really into, uh, I had a lot of puppets and I had some, a uh, couple dummies. I had a Charlie McCarthy dummy. Me too. Uh, I had a Jerry. Oh, McCarthy. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Nice. I had a Charlie <laughs> McCarthy and a Groucho Marx, uh, dummies. Wow. My Groucho cool. one was nicer because it had the swivel head. Oh, nice. Yeah, not yeah, just yeah. <laughs> sewed into place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I remember um, I uh, I had just watched uh, Child's Play 2, and I had my, you know, my dummies up on a shelf, uh, and I and underneath the shelf was a chair, and I had this little novelty bat I got at a Giants game on a, from a trip to San Francisco once, and um, I woke up early one morning, and it was still dark out, and I looked and my Charlie McCarthy dummy had fallen off the shelf <laughs> and somehow its upper body was like on top of the, um, the seat of the chair and its legs almost perfectly hitting the ground. And its hand was on top of the bat, the novelty bat. <laughs> oh, are you sure no one placed it that way? 
Yeah, I, that's the thing. I didn't even think about it till recently that uh, my brother knew how scared I was. I loved horror movies because I love being scared. Um, but uh, I think I, I, I should actually ask him about that because he said, I don't know what you're talking about. That's creepy, man. So maybe he did. Because <laughs> he also used to yell Candyman five times and lock me in the bathroom. Oh, perfect. Now that's a good yeah. So was he yeah. a fan also or was he into other stuff? No, he, you know, that's the, that's the kind of like such a defining thing in my childhood is that he, me, him and um, our friend Donald, we, we loved, um, you know, metal and hard music and we would play, you know, Metallica songs and Slayer and Sepultura songs in our garage. And then we'd watch horror movies, uh, you know, Donald would come over on Saturday nights so he could watch Tales from the Crypt because his parents didn't want him watching it. And, and my brother would just devour you know, Stephen King books and Dean Koontz books and just uh, would read a bunch. Um, but he was three years older than Donald and I. And he, at a certain point, uh, you know, kind of wanted to be cool, He's, you know, and start going surfing more, going hanging out, smoking pot with the kind of more bro guys and kind of <laughs> left me and uh, Donald uh to, you know, it, we felt betrayed. We're like, no, those guys suck. Like, we're doing the cool stuff. And, you know, they just would play reggae in the garage. We're like, no, you're like, you're just like a guy in Hawaii. This is not what we do. And and that actually, that anger and that desertion actually really did push me into finding even, you know, crazier sounding music like punk or uh, and hardcore and, and crazier like movies that he wouldn't want to. Like, you know, I was just like, I, it made me go full force into that stuff. What was the biggest uh, music performance you did? Um, back in Hawaii? Well, anywhere. I mean, uh, I know anywhere. you put out you put out your own. You have your own record label. You put out your your comedy uh, on that. But what was the biggest venue you did? Biggest crowd, maybe? Oh, geez, I don't know. Probably uh, the biggest crowd of any band I had was probably about you know. 60 people like but shoved oh, into a, but you know shoved into a room that only held 40 and uh, yeah. uh, well, world of punk yeah 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 exactly um but you know we, it's a when i did the release show for that weird owl tribute uh that punk tribute album i did um you know we did it in highland park and that I, i'd say about 200 people showed up for that which was a, a bit more but that's a it's like you know i that that weird owl stuff i almost kind of separate from everything else i've done because it's such a it's that that thing is a hobby. That's just like a little like hobby thing. I do. Very specific. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So tell me about the transition from being in a band to doing stand up. Um, yeah. So, you know, in Hawaii, there's I did, you know, I would started going to the Hawaiian International Film Festival uh, every year. It came in and I started really um getting I was playing in bands but I was getting really interested in uh getting really interested in you know entertainment and what what it would it take to be an actor or a filmmaker um and I would go to the Q&As for you know I, I remember going to see uh the first American screening of Battle Royale which was at the Hawaiian wow. International Film Festival wow um, that's yeah, an awesome start yeah yeah and I I went to uh I remember uh Bruce Campbell was in a uh ice skating comedy um from france about like it, it's like like it's a french movie and they're making a movie about ice skating but they bring in an american actor to play like a, a you know a, a player that gets transferred and that's played by bruce campbell uh doing the most bruce campbell and that's saying a lot 
Um, and and uh, I remember he was and he was there. So like a bunch of horror kids went out to the, see the screening of this French comedy, uh, all in their Evil Dead and Army of Darkness shirts and stuff like that. And um, but I I remember just seeing him and and being so like I thought he was so cool and so funny and so charming and it really was another thing of uh, just uh, like, I was like, I want to do that stuff. I want to, I want to be like Bruce Campbell. I want to be like Mel Brooks. It's a, you know, that scene, that film festival was very eye opening for me. Um, and so when I, I decided to move uh, like a year after high school, I was just, I was like, all right, I'm going to move to LA to try and, you know, become an actor. And I moved out here and it was so big and so scary. And I remember I didn't know what to do. So I tried out for the groundlings and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be like. And it just, everything was a bit too overwhelming. So I just ended up uh, getting a job at a record store in Venice beach and then living down in San Pedro with a bunch of punk kids where I just kind of played in bands and kind of went on tour, like as a roadie sometimes. And it just, and that was like a year of me going like, well, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to start this. Uh, and so I finally, I was like, maybe if I just stop thinking I'm going to be in a band and I just start doing stand up. that's, that's the, that's the transition. Well, it's a lot easier to travel as a stand up with uh, just your body and nothing else. <laughs> yeah, else. Exactly. Nobody tagging along in the bus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it, I, it's, you know, it's the best decision I ever made because it, you know, in the, you know, the most roundabout way I've gotten to achieve, even though stand up wasn't necessarily the thing that I always wanted to do, it's, uh, to quote, you know, Dana Gould, it's the nuclear rod that uh, powers everything else. <laughs> so it has opened doors to you as an actor, as a writer, as a performer. Yeah, they're all linked. They're all, it's all part of the same thing which is a creative output and it doesn't mean don't compartmentalize yourself you know just uh, like let it flow wherever it's going to come out of well there is a chauvinism about the horror genre as well you know if you have some success within this field as as many of us have you're also put into kind of a box that horror box that is not particularly respected and they don't think of you in any other way and yet I think it's a lot harder to make a, horror, a good horror movie than it is to make a good drama. Uh, yeah. It has definitely. to be good drama, and then you layer in the other elements of where it goes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's precisely it. And, you know, it's people – I always think about uh, when there's that story that Edgar Wright talks about when they're talking to George Romero, and um, he uh, he's like, so what are you guys doing next? What's the next project? And they're like, it was after Sean that and they're like, oh, we're going to do a, a like a parody of like action cop movies called Hot Fuzz. And his response was like, oh, you're going to try and get out, and like <laughs> meaning you're going to try and get out of horror, escape, uh, yeah. freedom. Yeah. Which, and you know, but that's the crazy thing is Romero made so many great different types of movies, um, and, and just like, but like just everyone was like, Oh, but you, you do, you do that one thing. And, and you not know, just that one thing, it was just the living dead thing, not yes. just horror, but just zombie horror. And he was probably trapped more than any of the other genre people that I knew by that 
chauvinism. You know, he was restricted to just like I didn't just do horror movies. I did Stephen King horror movies with George Romero. Yeah. He didn't just do horror movies. He did zombie movies and he tried so hard to get out of it. And and no one would let him, and which is why he never left Pittsburgh and kept doing everything independently. And it's it can be rough. Yeah. You know, I it's and like we we're saying, it's it's hard to do a good genre movie in any any genre like horror specifically because it has to be a good movie and then there has to be other elements so that's the fun thing about uh seeing taika watiti and all of the interviews oh. he's doing for jojo rabbit where he just keeps on saying uh i'm glad this comedy is doing well because comedy is one of the hardest things to pull off oh. and, and he talks about like it's like comedy acting is hard comedy directing and editing is tricky uh uh but you know when you're doing a drama, all you're trying to do is make it as real as possible. And that's usually what's real is not that, you know, I'm not saying it's boring, but I'm just saying it's, it's, it's just an, a facsimile. Yeah. Well, you can get a good script, a good group of actors, uh, a good score, and you can make a really good drama, but you know, you don't just have people working well, they have to work innovatively and surprisingly and create tension and, and it's release. And, and mm -hmm. it's such a combination when you're talking about working on something that affects you physically. Comedy and horror, we've talked about often on the show, how much they have in common, how much they shake hands because they go for a visceral, physical response. And, um, you know, nothing is more clear than we'll get into MST3K. <laughs> we get into that. But uh, tell me about your first stand-up gig. Oh, I mean, there's the open mic uh, as would be my first, you know, because I had done a little bit I, when I was in this crazy hardcore band that was like a straight edge, uh, you know, animal rights, vegan hardcore band when I was a kid. Oh. And, and everything was so, so heavy. And I was like 15 and I was like, I was like, I want to just be silly. Um, and I, so I used to do, I used to like read uh, funny poems I would write uh, to a guy playing bongos after our sets to kind of, you know, just, I was like, all right, tough guy town is done. This is beatnik stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I, cause I'd gotten really into uh, the, the last poets, which was a very like great ah, kind okay. of black Panther revolutionary stuff. And mm -hmm. I kind of started making like parodies of some of their stuff, uh, you know? Um, and so I kind of had some of that be behind me before I ended up doing stand up. But I remember I went to the ha ha cafe in North oh, Hollywood. On Lancashire. Yeah. On Lancashire. And I remember it went, it went, like pretty well, like up to a point I was like, Oh, this is kind of, you know, it's just an open mic and it was early and there was other comics were laughing though. And then I had, I made some joke. Like I made an incest joke <laughs> and, oh, oh. and it, it turned everyone against me. And like, I got like booed and told to leave. And Oh my. And so that was my, that was my first, uh, you know, stand up experience for sure. It was, it was, uh, it was terrible and great enough for me to, uh, hesitantly do it for the last 18 years were you ever opener on a terrible bill where you did not match at all yes uh i did hornblowers uh which was a space out in ventura and the headline act was a duo uh which was a uh it was a blind guy uh um who was like he was like a blind i think uh um, a Mexican guy and then an Irish guy was his uh, partner. And I say that because that's, 
I, I mentioned, you know, their nationalities because that's like what they use for a lot of their bits. That was uh, their shtick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was real broad and really, you know, I think it's a, they were billed as, you know, one of Jay Leno's favorite comedy acts. And um, just because a friend of mine couldn't middle, uh, he had to cancel. So he's like, Hey, my friend uh, Jonah Ray can come up and do it. And I went up and it was, you know, I was just this 20, 20 years old, I think still 21, maybe. And I just was just, and then probably the worst I ever bombed though, was I was at uh, the, um, the uh, just for laughs festival in Montreal, but it wasn't in Montreal. They have these shows that they'll do like 40 miles out of the town called, you know, Montreal satellite shows. And um, I just, it was all these kind of affluent, you know, people that were not into what I was doing. And then I, had this urge, this this combativeness to just start doing the grossest stuff and the dumbest stuff I could. And I remember Alonzo Bowden, who's this incredible comic, uh, um, he came up to me after my set. He's like, he's like, that's right, man. If they're not having your shit, you take them the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent advice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, from doing from doing like this, like all the stand up stuff, it's like how I've you know, you just end up meeting so many people and then kind of like fiddling away a career in different different aspects. Well, who were your comedy idols? Uh, I loved, I mean, my comedy idols like are Albert Brooks and Mel Brooks. Um, I love them. I got to write for Mel Brooks. Uh, I wrote The Fly 2 and Mel was the producer, uh, Brooks Films. And That's right, and it's through uh, Stu Kornfeld. Yes, and meeting with, with Mel and getting notes from him and having conversations. He's this very intelligent, erudite, educated man and funny as hell, but he'd be not at all the Mel Brooks you'd expect. And then suddenly, uh, then you'd get the 2000 year old man, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, an amazing experience. I can't, yeah, I can't imagine that. It's like, that's like when Stu Kornfeld, um, you know, he went on to uh, be producing partners with Ben Stiller Right. Uh, at, at Red Hour, and then yeah. and they uh, they produced uh, uh, mine and Kumail Nanjiani's stand up show on Comedy Central, uh, the I Meltdown. That I didn't realize that. Yeah. So when I got to meet Stu Kornfeld, uh, I just uh, I had just you know decades of questions to ask him. Yeah. <laughs> about all the different all the different stuff. Like you know, I was like I was like because I knew I always heard that it's like he was the reason you know he he was the reason that, you know, um, David Lynch, uh, you know, directed elephant man and Cronenberg. Yeah. Yeah. Like Stu Kornfeld was the, you know, uh, Mel's like hipster on the bottom floor, you know, of just like, it's like, these are the guys that you should get. These are the cool directors that are doing interesting things. And it's, uh, it's, I hope that one day there's a book about him because he's, he's such a weird legend. Yeah, I I hope that Mel writes an autobiography because he's such a literate and and funny and smart guy. You know, I just read last year they put out a Funny Man, um, which was a biography on Mel, and I was ah. excited. I was excited to read it, but because you know Mel doesn't really he he kind of keeps a lot of stuff quiet. You know, he has Definitely. his go to stories and bits, and yeah, um, and I I. I read this and I was like midway through going, I think this guy hates Mel Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's yeah. it. Well, 
one of the highest profile things that you did is a mashup of comedy and, and horror movies with MST3K. Tell me how that came around. I mean, it to me, it's one of the only successful Kickstarter campaigns that has really worked out. Yeah, I mean, we had at the time it was the most successful uh, Kickstarter for you know video project. Uh, I think um, Critical Role just uh, uh, knocked us off the the throne. But I was, you know, that's the thing. When I was growing up, I loved Mystery Science Theater, and because it was this, it was a combination of the things I liked. You know, it was just uh, old weird movies. Um, you know, comedy, just, it just, you know, like there was sketches, there was all kinds of, you know, there were songs. It was, it, cause I also loved Weird Al. So I loved, it was just this, there was all this different stuff and it really was a, uh, just, it hit every notch. And then I remember it, I was, you know, just had shirts, posters of it. Um, and then I think about a year into doing stand up, I had a meeting, I, you know, I kind of got noticed and I had meetings with agents and managers and stuff like that. And they always do that thing. It's like, Oh, what would your show be if you had a show idea? And I said, I'd probably just try and bring back mystery science theater. And at that point it had only been off the air for maybe four years. Right. So, um, so you know, they were like, no, that's never going to happen. And (laughs) so it's, it's just, it's, you know, it's just one of my favorite things. And to be able to have been able to get to do it is even you know, crazier to me. That's uh, two I, seasons of it too. Two seasons, twenty episodes, and it's so funny because when people were like, you know, it's when it when Netflix didn't pick up uh, for a third season, everyone's like, "Wow, what? Yeah!" Like it's like so upset, and it was the most zen I'd ever felt about something like this. Because one, you if you're doing this stuff long enough, you know, it's uh, like you know, like two seasons is more than you could ask for sometimes, and. Uh, like, so when it, when all was said and done, I was just like, wow, I, like I, I hadn't felt that kind of gratitude yet in my, my life. I, it's something I try to do with everything and I'm terrible at it. I'm always upset <laughs> or jealous of people. And, uh, uh, <laughs> but, no, uh, was, with that it, one, uh, yeah. it, it was the same thing with us. We did two seasons of masters of horror mm-hmm. and it stopped after that. And people, Again, like in your case, we're so upset and, oh, isn't it terrible? Why You can't do it. And I said, hell, we did 26 episodes I'm really, really proud of. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'd am i much rather drink that half full glass of look what we got to do than the half empty glass of, oh, shit, we didn't get to do more. I mean, we stopped at a really good spot. Yeah, know? I think, uh, you know, it's best to not be bitter because it really – especially, I mean, we, I'm sure we've had enough friends that had a couple, you know, a couple years of just like misses and you see them start to become bitter. And then, and then there's this, this, not the stink of failure, but the stink of bitterness, the, the, right. the, the taste of it. And you kind of go, I don't want to have this. Yeah. The guy's just complaining all the time because he feels he's been wronged and, or she's, she says she can never get anything going and it's all everyone else's fault. Like there's it, it's, you got to be careful that you don't become that person. Yeah. You you have to be someone that's not that angry. It happens a lot. And you know, the entertainment business does not owe any of us anything. No, anything we can get, we uh, we don't deserve, and we should be grateful for our masters. 
<laughs> exactly. So tell me about that process. How did it really come together? Was Joel Hodgson involved? Um, yeah. I, I imagine he had to give his blessing, right? No, he was, it was his baby. Again, uh, you know, he got the rights back. He, uh, you know, he, he got the money together uh, with Shout Factory to get the rights back to Mr. Science Theater. And he is just kind of used, you know, we had met just through kind of these different things. I was on a podcast that uh, he was a guest on and then we ran into each other and then we kind of just started emailing and becoming friends. And, you know, I, uh, he had to give someone an award at some event um and so he asked if i wanted to help him write jokes for it and so we kind of got along wow. in that style you know just uh and i was just, and he was always kind of like yeah man you know i'm thinking about bringing it back but you know, we'll see and <laughs> That's a very hawaiian attitude even though he <laughs> yeah there's a lot of uh like he always calls me like you know me and my wife will do the same thing she called me honorary midwesterner i think there's a lot of correlation <laughs> between the attitudes of uh, midwesterners and hawaiians um yeah but uh I, uh, you know, we just kind of stay in contact and he was always like, yeah, if we bring it back, would you want to be involved? I said, yes, I will do anything. I'll write on it. I will PA. I will, you know, anything you want. And then, you Did know, you anticipate being asked to be the lead character? No, no, of course. But I'd be lying if I didn't say in my head that I was like, I was like, should I just tell him I should be the guy? <laughs> Um, but he finally, after like a year and a half of talking about it, he's like, you know, I just realized you should be the guy. Cause he, he had seen enough of the stuff I had, you know, done performing wise in comedy. And I had, you know, um, I had done a, you know, a couple like web series and I had the show hit in America and he kind of just saw, he's like, yeah, I think you should just be the guy. And I remember when he said that, I was like, what, what guy, which guy? <laughs> he's like the, the me, the Mike. Yeah, yeah. The only guy. And, um, and so it it, you know, then we did the Kickstarter and I was like, Oh, I don't know if that's, that's going to work. And it, it, it worked really well. And then, you know, he's like, who do you want to be the voices of the robots? And I said, I, I can only think of these two guys that are just perfect for it, which were my stand up buddies, uh, Hampton Young doing Crow and Baron Vaughn. Um, right. who's an incredible actor, uh, in his own right, um, for Servo. And yeah, it just kind of all really happened. And it was all, you know, it was, it seemed like it took forever. And then it was, once production started, it was breakneck fast. And I was scared the whole time because I was the, the face of this very beloved thing that I would maybe be hesitant about. Right. Uh, and I would be ready to hate me. If it wasn't <laughs> me, I probably would have hated whoever got it. Well, tell me about the process of the show. I know a lot of it was ad lib, but it had to have been planned as well. You had to have gone over the movies, but but how did the Kickstarter thing happen, and how did that meld into the Netflix deal and and uh, and become a reality? Well, the like you know when Joel he said we're going to kickstart it. He met some guy uh, Ivan Asquith, who was a producer on the show. He's he he worked at. Um, you know, Kickstarter. And he's like, we're going to do this whole thing. And I, and I'd never understood any of that stuff. And, um, I still have a hard time asking for money for anything, you know, just, <laughs> it's, you know, um, and so I, I, you know, he, we launched it and it just, it, and then, you know, they were announcing me right away. And then I was scared that it was good. If like, once I'm announced, oh, maybe there you go. it's yeah. good. Yeah. It's going to drop down. And then, <laughs> and it started like, making a ton of money. And I was like, uh, I was like, Oh no, it's like, is it getting, is it way more popular than Joel thought? And then he's going to quickly recast me with Seth Rogen or something, you know? Uh, um, 
and it just kind of kept on growing and and then we did it and then there was this then there was a kind of a bidding war between um uh netflix and uh CISO, which was where which was the nbc digital platform that i was doing my other show uh hidden america right. which is a tra- travel parody um and you know it's and there was just like this uh, and i remember the whole time i was like i was like please netflix <laughs> i wanted <laughs> yeah. netflix so bad yeah yeah and then you and know, we ha- ended yeah and it happened and because we made so much money off of it that's why we we're able to do 14 episodes which is a long season uh for for netflix yeah for sure now what was the process of choosing the films i assume they were all public domain movies no, none of them. None of the movies have really ever been public domain since the, I think about the second season. They they oh, get the rights. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's just uh, because if you're not, I think when they were when they moved to cable, I think it just they had a little extra money to get the rights and stuff. But like it was that. no and, longer a local show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and um, and so yeah, and, and all of these things are you know. People. That's why it's 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 you know it's a dinky looking show for the most part, endearingly so. But it does cost a lot of money because you have to get the rights to these movies to show, and you know it's usually one of those things where you go to uh, one distributor that has a good library, and you kind of just try and do a deal with that distributor. And uh, and I'm sure you, you know a lot of the stuff where it's you know it's like. They're like, ooh, they have that movie. They're like, yes, mm-hmm. but but to get that movie, you're mm-hmm. gonna have to maybe use one of these movies too. And then, and then, you know, and but Joel is very very meticulous with, um, you know, we had we had a lot of American International uh, pictures and um, and Good I remember there was there, yeah, 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 and I remember there was even a there was a deal there was some deal where it's like um, we could use Corman movies, but we couldn't make jokes about him or his wife. That was like that was the rule, and everyone was like, "Why would we?" <laughs> and he probably did not impose that rule himself. No, no, exactly. And then I remember um, we did uh, an Al Adamson movie. We did uh, his his most family friendly fair, uh, Carnival Magic, okay. and and there was a big uh, discussion of uh, do we make references to like what happened to this guy? And everyone's right. like, "No, the movie's sad enough." Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's amazing that there's a new collection of Adamson, 30 of his movies all together with the documentary about his life and the whole murder case and being buried under concrete and all of that. But that's that's another show. That's a, that's a whole, that's a, that's the next, like from the makers of Tiger King comes the Al Adamson documentary. That Tiger King is phenomenal. I well, I'm, like I'm savoring it. We're not we're not blazing through it. We're watching like an episode every couple days. I love it. I couldn't it. stop. I couldn't stop. Great. Yeah, my my friend had a great uh, uh, perspective on it. He says, um, uh, with everybody uh, like loving you know the people in Tiger King, he's like, this is why Jody Hill and Danny McBride uh, are successful is because they were able to tap in to this specific kind of southerner. Wow, that's for sure. Wow. Yeah. So tell me about your life as a podcaster and a nerdist and and being a part of that nerd culture too, because there's so many different um, sides to that cube that is Jonah Ray, you know? Yeah. You know, I was uh, doing stand up uh, and making videos um, and, and then uh, uh, 
uh, Chris Hardwick was starting a show called uh, Web Soup with some other people that he, well, he was going to be the host of it. And so he recommended me to be, uh, you know, a, a writer on the show and who would uh, direct sketches. And so I had to interview for it and, you know, and uh, and get the job from Brad Stevens and Boyd Fico, who were working on The Soup. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I came on to that show um, just, you know, directing sketches, writing jokes. And and then uh, when we were doing that, we ended up doing a, uh, a pilot for some other e-show. And it was like looking like it was going to go and then it didn't. And then uh, Chris just decided he wanted to start a podcast. And uh, he was like, did you want to start? Do you want to be in this podcast with me? Um it's a, we'll, you know, we'll call it the Nerdist after my website. And I was like, yeah, sure. What's a podcast. <laughs> uh, um, and so, you know, we started it and we had, you know, Matt Meyer, of course, was a, was a part of it. And, and I, you know, I never had any intention of, I never considered myself a part of nerd culture. I just, I, you know, nerd culture, I think was still, and I was working of course at, you know, G4, which was a, uh, you know, tech right. and nerd network. Yeah. Yeah. But it, that's only really because I was doing stuff there already, mainly because uh, a guy who was doing their sketches saw me do stand up and cast me in something, and then we started writing stuff. And, and I, you know, the idea of uh, making it like it's like I never, I, for me, I was just trying, I was pursuing comedy. Right. And, and so, like, when we started doing The Nerdist, it's like, and it blew up so fast and so big. And, I kind of just, you know, I never had any intention of being like an interview person or like a, a, a host of any sort. I just wanted to make stuff. I never wanted to really be myself. If I was going to be myself, it was going to be a, you know, a version of it. Um, and and so I just kind of was along for this ride uh, and was definitely, a you know, a part like considered like a nerd comic all of a sudden. Like all these things that I was just <laughs> like, I was like, but I'm just in comedy. I don't understand. And. Uh, but, your, but your tech knowledge must have expanded during that period. Just from seeing, you know, people wealthier than I uh, buying stuff. <laughs> well, I, I want to jump back just for one second to, to MST3K, because I know you were on the Movies That Made Me podcast. <laughs> I, I've always known how Joe feels about uh, that show. He felt that it disrespected the movies, but it's obviously done with so much affection. And I'd just love to talk to you about that when, when he did kind of spank you a little bit. He did. Uh, you know, so Josh Olson, um, you know, asked me to, he's like, he's like, Oh, would you want to do the movies that made me podcast? And I was like, Oh yes, please. I love Joe Dante. Uh, this would be so cool. Uh, I get to the office, I sit down, and then um, right before Joe Dante walks in, he goes, uh, Josh goes, um, he's like, oh, uh, by the way, uh, Joe despises Mystery Science Theater 3000. But welcome and, to our show. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, right on. And then he comes in, and Joe is so aloof and so cool, and, you know, he just sits down and he crosses his legs, and he's just kind of his hair just kind of perfectly quaffed and, you know, I just, I, I would always put like you, Joe and David Lynch and the, uh, the Mount Rushmore of, uh, hair directors. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's like, so you got, you know, you got this guy right in front of you who you just love and you love his movies and you think he's great and he's done so much for so many people and he 
he's got this, you know, he's tied into the, the history of um, a lot of stuff I like. And he just kind of, you know, and the thing is, it's like, and I say this with, you know, knowing, knowing our own, you know, kind, but like, he's like a, he's like a hipster. So he starts giving me the hipster treatment. I'm like, I have eh. never thought of Joe as a hipster or heard him referred to as a hipster. <laughs> this will be a big surprise to him, I'm sure. I think just like, you know, I I, I think not of like the hipster we know of, you know, like now, right. but like I think not he's a the, hipster, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But just like, uh, eh, it's just like he was very dismissive of it, of Mystery Science Theater. And then he started taking me to task for stuff that had nothing to do with me. Like it was like, it's like you guys don't use good prints of the uh, of the movies, you edit them down. There's like the commercial breaks and it makes everything. And then you have to put those dumb sketches in the middle of it. You're talking <laughs> over it. And uh, and you, you're never getting good prints. Everything looks so bad. Some of those movies were good. And I was just, I wanted to so much be just like, it's like, hey, hey, man, uh, this is my first day. I just started working here. You know, <laughs> like I'm not, that's from a different time. And then, yeah, I think he, I think he also brought up like, uh, this Island Earth, which was, uh, you know, he was just very upset that that was done for the movie that all before. Yeah, that, that they did. Yeah. yeah, which is one of my favorites. I saw it in the theater. Um, yeah. But, uh, and actually two of my stand-up records are uh, named after lines from that, uh, from that Mystery Science Theater movie. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, um, but, uh, it, and that was like years before the, what is even a possibility to be involved in it. But uh, I digress. Uh, so he's like kind of going on and then I kind of realized I could just, I'm just telling him where it's like, I love these movies. I, I admire these movies. I grew up watching these movies. Um, but it doesn't mean that I can't, you know, like, it's like when you have a friend, you make fun of your friend. Yeah. It doesn't mean you love them any less, uh, you know? Uh, and so it's I a said, sign of affection to tease, right? I, I think so. I think so for sure. And you know, we don't, you know, we call them cheesy, we don't say, you know, we don't say, you know, it's like, oh, these are shitty movies, you know, <laughs> we go, and we, and we do our, we do our best to never make any jokes about like, it's like, oh, well that was dumb or that sucked or what was that? You know, we just kind of, we start to kind of layer in another aspect of what the movie is already providing. And so I kind of said, it's much like uh, sampling in hip hop. Uh, or uh, collage work uh, where you're kind of taking all these different elements of you maybe you're singing a song over something or you're referencing another movie that this movie you know had something in common with and you're bringing in all these different ideas uh, with words over uh, a screen to, to make this pastiche of a new form so it's just a it's a remixed you know if, if you're going to say like it's, it's hip hop you know, making fun of the songs they're sampling. No, they're just, they're reutilizing old art to make a collage of something else. And then he was like, all right, yeah, pastiche. Fair enough. And not too much of a rationalization. But we'll <laughs> <laughs> I, tr I do believe that though. I think it's, you know, no, it's course. just kind of, same, it's, it's, a, you know, it's part, it's just a new way of parody. I think it's just a new form or yeah. a different form of parody. Yeah, it's it's not dismissing it. If anything, it's celebrating it. There's a lot of movies that people now know about because you know there's a whole cultural around Manos Hands of Fate, yeah. which is you know not. I'll say out of all the movies they've done, that one's just not good. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have there's a favorite? A, do I have a favorite like of the movie of itself the or the episode uh, of the the movies that you did? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I found um, the Italian movie, uh, The Christmas That Almost Wasn't. I thought that was such a fascinating movie. Uh, just the idea that Santa Claus, uh, Santa Claus's workshop, um, uh, the land that he got, like, got sold. And so he's being evicted <laughs> by a guy that hates uh, the sound of children laughing. And then there's this amazing... So he gets a lawyer to help him out to try and get the, it's just a very fascinating story. And also there's this amazing weird element that was, it's almost like, it's like, Oh yeah, I never even thought of this before where Santa Claus, it's like, he's like, I love children. I just love how they're so peaceful and their eyes are closed and they just look so they're, they're very cute and, and, and they're, uh, they're just so quiet. And the guy, his friend Whipple, who was obsessed with them goes, wait, have you never seen a kid awake? <laughs> and, and so it's like Santa Claus has to come to terms with like kids being loud and screaming as he becomes a mall Santa Claus. It's it's just a fascinating and tons of great ideas. Um, but I think also as far as some of the other ones we've done, my favorite is probably Land That Time Forgot. I think that's like a that's such a big swing and it's a great uh, um, you know McClure movie. Oh and, yeah. Yeah, and Time Travelers. I think Time Travelers is a fantastic movie. I do too, and that had a Forey Ackerman cameo in it too. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's just like the the, whole, the just the look of uh, Time Travelers and all the practical magic that was done for the uh, the effects, uh, which were all just like magic tricks. Right. They brought um, in a magician to do magic tricks instead of visual effects. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but those well, are probably two of my favorites. Yeah. Well, let's, before we wrap it up, uh, first of all, I want to say uh, that we are doing this remotely because of the coronavirus. We are in different rooms and doing this over uh, uh, online. So if there are any technical issues, uh, thank you for bearing with us for, for doing that. But I also want to get into your acting career a little bit, particularly because you've got a brand new movie, Puka, coming out on Hulu by our friend Alejandro Burgues. Yes, yes. Uh, Alejandro Burgues, uh, who hates when I pronounce his name because I always just call him Burgess. <laughs> uh, and he can't stand it. Um, but uh, he, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that I, there's a sequel to Puka uh, the, from the Into the Dark series that they do that Nacho Vigalando was the director of the first one. And um, and Alejandro directed this one. It was written by Ryan Coppler, who is uh, writing partners with Felicia Day, who is one of the producers on it and an actor in it. And I play her husband. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, that was like one of the best experiences I had acting uh, yet. Uh, you know, I got to do and it's I love being in horror movies. And I love because uh, I got to be in a uh, Victor Crowley. Uh, for Adam and, yeah. For Adam Green, and who was also in bands, another director in bands. There you go. Um, and you know that one was that was like I shot that in the middle of making my show Hidden America, and also shooting um, Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Wow. And so I had to like leave set and go out into the desert and shoot all night. I had like we had one night to shoot the whole cold open of that thing. Right, I get killed by you know Victor Crowley and. And so, uh, so it's like, and that was like, that was a dream come true to just be killed in a horror movie, especially in, in a franchise, uh, which is, you I'll know, keep that's that in mind. Yeah. Oh, please. I, I, I tell <laughs> all my friends, I, you know, I tell all my friends that make movies, I was just like, I was like, I don't, I've never really wanted to, 
I never had the desire to be like the star of anything. I've, I know I've been the lead in a lot of stuff I've made, but I really like my favorite actors are always the character actors aside guys. Um, and so just to, just to be able to do that as much as possible, uh, will it would make me so happy to have a career like that. Uh, that kill just me, always, please. Yeah. yeah, kill me. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it also, you know, keeps the uh, health insurance going, but, uh, <laughs> Well, when I was, uh, when I auditioned, I had to send in a tape for the Puka thing and I wasn't sure who was involved. And, um, and I, like the more I heard about, the more I got excited. I was, you know, that was a Blumhouse production and, and, you know, I was going to play Felicia's husband and you got, you know, Malcolm Barrett from Timeless and, uh, and stuff like that. And, and I, I get, I get one of my favorite people. I mean, he's such a talented guy and such a really wonderful human being too. He really is. It's uh, and he, you know, you got to work with him on the Nightmare Cinema, which his yeah. segment of that is so great. With well, that, that's such a fantastic. Uh, that's a fantastic film. Uh, uh, really good job on that. Thank uh, you. Uh, I mean, it's like it's it's been kind of um, awkward for me this whole time, uh, like answering questions from you when like you have such a, like an amazing if you ever if you ever want to have an episode where someone just talks to you and asks you questions i'll, I'll go on that. your show yeah 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 <laughs> um but uh uh the uh yeah like alejandro was so great so visual and like was doing so much with such a short amount of time and um and just was so buoyant on set the whole time the whole you know it really kind of trickles down um, from the director, uh, you know, it's like people, if the director is kind of stressed or something like that, like everyone's going to start to get a little stressed and, you know, and then, or if the star is kind of problematic, they'll stress out the, uh, the director and then the producers and everyone's going to, and then it kind of, but you know, everybody on set was so funny and so sweet and really just wanted to do things, you know, right. And I, you know, they didn't have enough money. Uh, for me to have a stunt double. So I ended up having to do a bunch of my stunts myself. Um, of course they didn't. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's funny. It's one of those things where like, will you be fine? Do like, you know, like falling over like a desk, right? Uh, like tripping over and falling over. And I was like, yeah, I could, I loved like physical comedy growing up. So I would always do Pratt falls and stuff like that. But then you forget that it's a, uh, oh, you just, it's not a Pratt fall. You have to fall like eight or nine or 10 times from different angles and different takes. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, Oh, my body was really wrecked after a couple of these days. Um, But it was, it was so fun. And just, uh, you know, ask Alejandro about Juan of the dead and making a movie in Cuba. And, uh, and then we become friends and we're like, you know, it's a, we're now trying to work on, you know, more ideas to do stuff together uh in the future I, I told him i was like i'll be your bruce campbell to my sam raymond <laughs> that's it so he'll figure out ways to torture you over and over and over again like sam does yeah it. yeah. <laughs> yeah he was pretty it's like he was so it's like he was so verbally abusive on set but with a, such a smile <laughs> but like that was the best experience because i got to you know, uh, I, I got to just be, I was like fourth on the call list and I, I got to do all these different types of scenes and I got to, you know, I got to run, I got to like, you know, get hit and scratched. I got to have like a funny moment with the girl who plays my kid. It's just, but it was also fourth on the call list. It's like, I'm there all the time having a good time and there's not a lot of pressure on me. And it was just the, the time of my life. How great. M- musician, stand up, um, uh, writer, actor, performer um what have you not done that you really want to do uh, do you want to direct a feature do you want to um 
you know. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's the next thing I, I want to try and uh, you know I wrote uh, a script. Uh, I sold a script to BBC in England uh, last year, wow. uh, which would be just a workplace comedy set at a record store. Um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I came from a tower records background myself. I was not uh, manager. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a little like, uh, I'm a little worried cause you know, high fidelity has come out since I've, you know, right. started the process, but that's just going to happen sometimes. And, uh, so like that is kind of in my head, the two things like, it's like, I would love to, cause I've done a lot of like comedy and sketch style, um, shows. I would love to do a more narrative, um, comedy, uh, show, but then also at the same time, I'm trying to figure out how to adapt a, uh, a graphic novel about herpes uh, that I really <laughs> want to make into a movie. And because I've been directing lots of music videos and stuff like that, and I want to try because I, you know, I just kind of want to do it all. I want to, I want to be Mel Brooks in High Anxiety, uh, you know, where he just did everything, and I want to, you know, I want to be Albert Brooks in uh, everything he's made as well. So great. Jonah Ray, thank you so much for joining us on this. This was really a blast. I'm so glad to have met you Thanks, Mick. last month in Florida. And and I look forward to everything you do. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm uh, a uh, big fan. I, I, I know I said it before. But oh, it goes two ways. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Take awesome. care. See you. You too. If you have any comments or questions for the show, please contact us at Mick Garris PM on Twitter or Instagram, or at the Mick Garris and the Postmortem Podcast page on Facebook. And if you're enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. Also, if you're interested, my latest book, These Evil Things We Do, the Mick Garris Collection, is available in paperback and Kindle ebook at Amazon.com. And my first short story collection, A Life in the Cinema, read by Miguel Ferrer, Matt Frewer, Stephen Weber, Joe R. Lansdale, and myself, is available now on audible.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.